Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That's the, the sort of contradiction of Trumpism. There is no draining of the swamp. This government is the same size it was when Barack Obama ran it. The exact same size, and maybe bigger in some respects. That's Charlie Gasparino, one of the hungriest, most dogged journalists in financial news. And now, much of his beat includes staying on that other native New Yorker. You know, the guy who left Midtown for Foggy Bottom. Do stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Health Warrior. We've gone organic. Health Warrior's delicious pumpkin seed bars are now USDA certified organic. Uh, You know I love the chia bars. I swear by mango and apple cinnamon, the 100-calorie snack made with real ingredients like chia that keep me full with only 4 to 5 grams of sugar. Um, Gosh, the superfood protein bars, 11 grams of clean plant protein, no dairy, no soy, and packed with superfood nutrition. You could find them everywhere from Wegmans, Target, my favorite, Elwood Thompson's, and, of course, at healthwarrior.com where there are all sorts of specials on shipping, and you can try a sample and check out the blog. And by our friends at Elwood Thompson's, the best market in Virginia, hands down. It's local produce season. There's a great hot bar. There's a weekly sales flyer at elwoodthompsons.com. All sorts of catering abilities and more news on that front. You got to check them out for breakfast. I swear by the breakfast bar because I'm there every day and I drink a Blanchard's coffee. And now that it's summertime, I spaz out with not just the Chia bar, but a cold brew Blanchard's coffee Mm, mm, mm. at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Midtown NYC is Charlie Gasparino, senior correspondent at Fox Business Network. His byline has graced the good pages of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and Newsweek. A Bronx-born pugilist, Charlie penned a favorite book, Blood on the Street, the sensational inside story of how Wall Street analysts duped the generation of investors. And you can also see him throw the occasional uppercut on his Twitter account, C. Gasparino. How are you? Good, sir. Very good. Thanks for having me. It's very nice to finally have you on, sir. I have to. I always wanted to ask you in person. Now I've been following your byline for a long time. Right. You are a New Yorker, died in the wool New Yorker. I used to bump mm-hmm. into you. I think jogging uh, by the Hudson River at crack of dawn or something like that. Uh, East East River. East River. That's right. Yep. I, I, I haven't been in Manhattan for a long time. But do you have to wake up and pinch yourself um, and kind of? daily comprehend the fact that Donald Trump, a guy that we knew was like the ultimate Manhattan 1980s self-promoter, is leader of the free world? You know, sometimes I do, but, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I covered the, the campaign long enough to to uh, to realize that, you know, for all his negatives, and obviously you, you've read my Twitter commentary on him, and you see me on TV, um, he he's an amazing marketer of himself. And, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, presidential elections is, is all about all about marketing and slogans and and pitches and distilling sort of basic um, ideas down to um, digestible sound bites. And that's what he's always been good at. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, as his business career, uh, the real estate stuff, the uh, which, you know, blew up in the in the in the aftermath of the 1980s when the real estate uh Boom in New York hit a hit a bust. Uh, his casino problems, which lasted through like 1993, right. 94, uh, he was effectively out of it. As you know, like he, he wasn't personally tied to those casinos when they imploded completely. Remember, he had he had basically um, uh, changed the terms and conditions right. of, the, of right. the covenants of the bonds and all that. Uh, but 
if you notice the one thing he's always done well, and that's self-promotion and marketing of himself. So, you know, you could never, I mean, he's better than, he was better than all those seasoned politicians. And by the way, in, on the Republican side, and by the way, this was considered the best crop of uh, Republican uh, candidates uh, ever, right? You had there were just Christie, so many of them. You know, if you remember, and they were if so you remember good, the they were, primaries, if you remember CNN, right. I mean, the kind of the carnival barking atmosphere but it was like, of it. But, but these were like legitimately real politicians. Jeb Bush, John Kasich, you go down the line, and in, and he and he cut through them like butter. And by the way, I'm quoting him. He bragged to a friend of mine where he said, "I cut through them all like butter," and he did that because he is a masterful uh, marketing. He's a ma- marketing genius. And uh, he understands sound bites. He understands. He definitely understands his base. You know what's interesting, and you can see this play out in how he's handling this this whole thing with the NFL and the the, the, the anthem controversy. And just so you know, I I've done a lot of reporting on this. I know a lot of the owners. Uh, I know Roger Goodell pretty well uh, at Fox Business. I actually was. I think I broke the story on Roger Goodell, the terms of his contract, which was which was crafted amid this whole controversy where there was essentially an uprising. Inside the NFL, a sort of uh, a, a, a minority of the owners led by Jerry Jones was sure. looking to un- were looking to unseat Roger Goodell because they didn't think he handled the one knee controversy well, and Trump trumped them on this. So tr- Donald Trump understood the basic audience of the NFL um, of the, better than Roger Goodell. He understood that if you look at the demographics of the typical NFL viewer, watcher, you know, consumer, it's generally a white male generally making less than $100,000 a year, generally skewing towards military. Uh, he understood that, like, and he understood it intuitively. I, I, I bet you it wasn't based on market research, and he has owned the NFL on this issue. Let me ask and, you, though, going back, you, you remember we used to follow the New Jersey Generals. I was a big USL right. fan in the mid-'80s. Unpack that part for us, and how much of this goes back to sour grapes of his relationship with the NFL in the 1980s? I don't think it does. I mean, I'm, listen, I'm sure he's he's got no—he's uh, not—he doesn't love them. I'm sure he's not a big fan of Roger Goodell, who was essentially an apparatchik inside the NFL for many years. So he was there in the 1980s. I'm not, I can't remember what capacity Goodell was back then. But, you know, he's he went through the ranks, Roger, Roger did. So uh, I'm sure it's, there's no uh, love—I'm sure he's, he's not crazy about him, but— the, I think this is more politics, and because Donald Trump does have um, a, a relationship with Jerry Jones. I mean, he does have a relationship with Bob Kraft, uh, but he knows that this is a very this is a winning issue with him, particularly with his base. That that the that base that I described to you hates the fact that people are taking a knee during the, the national anthem. Uh, and he he's gonna, and he's going to keep driving it home. And by the way, there there's outreach to him right now, and he's like, "Screw you, <laughs> I'm, I win on this thing every time." So and and I can tell you, it is roiling the business side of the NFL. Sure. We should point out uh, something I reported yesterday. The NFL is having its sponsor meeting. I think it's t- it's tomorrow. I know that I've got the agenda. And uh, if you look at the agenda, which I have, it's like all this stuff about how to make the NFL a greater place and this and then an ownership panel. No one—Donald Trump and the one-knee controversy is not explicitly named in that, on, that, on that agenda, but that's all anybody's talking about at this thing. Right. Charlie, first New Yorker to take the White House since FDR. And FDR was a product of Hyde Park. It was Teddy Roosevelt right. who was the New Yorker. 
And, you know, not a politician, not a JD, not a constitutional uh, interpretation professor like Barack Obama was. I still will yep. never get over the fact that a person who – I just remember, you know, you and I both covered Wall Street. Uh, the people at Goldman and Morgan Stanley and, and the former Lehman Brothers, they never took this guy seriously as a businessman. No. I mean, by then he, had, he had transitioned into the whole apprentice thing. Trump Airlines, Trump Stakes, the various – the various uh, real estate and casino ventures that kind of you right. know end and up they don't in believe he's worth they don't believe he's worth ten billion because they sit, sit around and say well first off none of them would deal with him because of because of what happened with the casinos and how he stiffed some of his creditors sure and and, and also they don't believe he's worth ten billion they because they say well what billion, real billionaire is selling you know branded stuff but this is but here's a, here's the thing to me. And it might be stating the obvious to you. He is not a Rockefeller Republican. He's not like a limousine Republican. He's happened no. to transition himself. He sold the country on this fact that he's a red meat Republican. He shows up at rallies in Alabama or I'm here in central Virginia. And I'm not so convinced that the Trump I knew and the Trump I covered is much of a Republican to begin with. I mean, after all, this guy cut, what, a $2,500 check to Hillary's campaign in 08. Oh, yeah. Well... I don't know what Donald is ideologically. Um, I think he's whatever it takes to win. Um, You know, I know how he got to where he is now with this sort of new type. I mean, listen, I I, I consider myself a libertarian conservative, so I know a lot about the conservative movement. I've read a lot about – I had I had the great pleasure of meeting Bill Buckley a few times in my life, and uh, or at least once I should say. I think it was uh, another time I was in the same room with him, and I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's how much right. I know about the conservative movement. I know a lot. Um, Donald Trump isn't a traditional conservative. Now, what he did to get to where he is now in these sort of brand of politics that that he that he did, and I'll tell you how it happened. Um, Roger Stone, the political advisor, uh, the political consultant. Uh, you know, you could say what you want about Roger, but he's a smart guy. He and a guy named Sam Numberg, another political advisor, and they're both they're both around a lot now, given what's going on with the Mueller probe. Both have been uh, ensnared in it in some degree. But be that as it may, about four years ago, Trump hired them both and uh, hired hired Stone, and Stone had had Nunberg as on his staff, and they both sat around. They figured out the four or five issues that Donald Trump should should hit on. They did that mainly, from what I understand, according to Nunberg, this is what Nunberg told me, by listening to lots of talk radio, and not what, for example, Mark Levin said on talk radio, but what the callers called in about. And it came down to five or six core issues from what I understand. And I'll give you right what's off the top of my head. I haven't written them down, but it was trade. Um, the These these sort of call-ins, callers into right-wing talk radio hated free trade. They think NAFTA was screwing the American working class. Uh, they don't like it. unfettered immigration. They really believe that on top of all the stuff that's hurting the American middle class and working class is unfettered immigration that's pushing down wage rates. Now, whether you agree with it or not, that's what they believe. They hate political correctness right off the bat. Uh, they're for strong military, but they're not for military interventionism of the type that George Bush did in Iraq. These were type. These were the type of core issues that this constituency, uh, you know, was 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 near and dear to its heart. 
Uh, Trump then began to run on that stuff. Uh, and you could see it as, you know, his embrace of the birther issue, which I guess is an offshoot of political correctness. Why can't I question whether President Obama is, you know, was born in this country? He's never released his birth certificate. You know, everybody's so careful. We can't ever have it. We can't talk about, uh, you know, talk about race in any way. Uh, and I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. And that's how it started. And it manifested itself in his trade policy, as you see now, which is not quite conservative. I mean, listen, I could tell you the business roundtable and Jamie Dimon, you know, are going nuts right now. Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, going nuts over the potential of a tariff war with China or blowing up NAFTA, you know, you, you name it. So it's not quite conservative on trade. Uh, on taxes, you know, Donald Trump threatened to raise taxes on, now he didn't do it, but he threatened to raise taxes on, on hedge fund managers and, you know, get rid of the carried interest deduction for private equity executives. You know, that's something that Republicans would never do. Uh, so he started sort of getting a, a message that appealed to, to distinct Republican or conservative base voters. And many of those voters who were disenchanted enough with Republicans that they didn't vote, they didn't turn out. And it was a brilliant marketing strategy, and that's how he won. Now, whether he replicates that or not, because, you know, one of the things you you will say about Donald Trump observing him, and I observed this as a businessman, too, because I've had some dealings with him. Always good, just so you know. But, you know, I, you know, butting heads and, you know, he is a blunt force instrument, okay? And... Um, that is a problem, I think, politically. And, you know, so you could see it in some of these races that are that that Republicans are losing, which you think they might win. They're losing, you know, women voters who are who just don't like the crassness, right. you know, some, the antics and, and, and just some of his really, really rough edges, even if they may like the fact that there's a, a tax cut coming. They, they that part of of that of the Republican base, you know, he could lose that, and that could be big if he if the Republicans, you know, don't win, keep the House. You know, he's got a real problem. I mean, I don't think people, uh, I don't think Republicans are fully digesting this because uh, I've covered Wall Street for so many years. My best sources, people always used to think, oh, Elliot Spitzer leaked that to you. This guy leaked that to you. Generally, when there were major investigations, and particularly when the Democrats controlled Congress as they did in the um, in 2002, 2003, when there was corporate scandals then, and I think, and after that, when uh, when uh, George Bush, uh, during the financial crisis, uh, the biggest leakers were these congressional committees uh, that have staffers that, you know, just, and, and by the way, they sit around and they subpoena people all the time. <laughs> right. And I don't think people understand that if you elect the Demo Democrats control, will control about I would say off the top of my head, eight investigative committees with subpoena power to sub that, that may, may that, that will probably believe they have jurisdiction to roast Donald Trump and his various and, and on a whole a host of issues, including his business interests, um, you know, if they take the House. And that's going to be an existential existential threat to his presidency because that'll set up, you know, for, you know, they'll roast him until 2020 comes around. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Fox Business Network's Charlie Gasparino, who's now really covering the nexus of his his stomping grounds, Wall Street, and um, the guy Manhattan sent to the White House in Donald Trump. I would love to know about this encounter you had with uh, Gary Cohn at the restaurant. <laughs> I think this was in the news. This was the Goldman guy, uh, the Goldman right. executive, the uh, National Economic Council director who was you know, short-lived in the White House, who accosted you at a restaurant just a few weeks ago? 
Well, uh, you know, just a little back up on Gary Cohn. Very aggressive guy. When he was at Goldman Sachs, he was Lloyd Blankfein's number two and essentially his enforcer. Big guy, six, six two, something like that. You know, he's an imposing-looking man. Uh, so I was at one restaurant. It was kind of weird. I was at this place called the Lexington Steakhouse in Manhattan, and I saw a bunch of Secret Service guys out outside as I was leaving, and then I thought I saw Rod Rosenstein, you know, the guy that's heading the Mueller investigation. And um, I called my friend who's in there. I was having like drinks at that point with a couple of people involved. And we were actually talking about cryptocurrencies, nothing. You know, I was a couple of crypto executives uh, and we were talking Bitcoin and and blockchain and things of that nature. And I called my friend. I said, I know this is off topic, but look in the corner. Is that Rod Rosenstein? And he said, the deputy attorney general who's doing the Mueller investigation, he goes, I think it is. So I came in, and lo and behold, it was him. And I, it was a Secret Service guy sitting there, and I said, can I say hello? He goes, go for it. And I had a nice conversation with Ron Rose. Yeah, so I thought that was the end of the, my, uh, you know, my, 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 my one zealot moment, I guess you could say, for the night. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, but then I go to another restaurant where I was actually having dinner. Uh, meeting another friend of mine, a couple of traders, and we, and as I walk in, there's Gary Cohn, and he starts, you know, he starts breaking my chops a little bit about, or a lot, I should say, about the, uh, about my coverage of him, and you said this, and you said that, and you said this, and I shook his hand, and I said, okay, I'll buy you a Shirley Temple, so I bought him a oh, Shirley no. Temple. Oh, and, no. But when I shook, when I shook his hand, I noticed, it, it, it just freaked me out. It was kind of smallish for this big guy. I'm 5'8", you know, although I'm 5'8", 200 pounds, I'm not like an, I'm not, you know, I'm not tall, but I, you know, I work out every day, you know, I have kind of gnarly hands, but this guy's hands were like, uh, you know, they were very thin and kind of, they they were creepy, it creeped me out, so the next day I was, (laughs) somehow this came up on Cavuto's show, and I mentioned it, and it went viral. Now, um, I, I, you know, it was, <laughs> it was an observation I made about a man's hands that uh, got me the most press I've had. I, you know, I got, not, I not got, breaking news. Well, I got to <laughs> ask you, your old colleague Kate Kelly reported for the Times that Gary Cohn, you know, last summer he had drafted his resignation letter after Trump's response to uh, the atrocities in Charlottesville. And I got to ask myself, I mean, there's always been great upside for a guy like, uh, you know, you think of Corzine, a Paulson, one of these Goldman people, you go off in the nation's service, you've minted, you've gotten the Goldman brass ring, and you go off, what is the upside for a Goldman Sachs guy to go to a Trump White House or even a Rex Tillerson? Um, it seems just to be so incongruent with kind of even, you know, you're, you might be a fiscal Manhattan or Westchester right. or Long Island conservative, but... Otherwise, you have really nothing else in common with Donald Trump. Well, well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I've had this kind of conversation with Larry Kudlow, um, who's a friend of mine. Um, and I said, you know, you sure you want to do this? And he was like, eh, if it happens, it happens. I, I think, you know, listen, I think if you're, if you're telling someone like Gary Cohn or Larry Kudlow, hey, do you want to be part of major, major policy making from an economic standpoint, you know, they would all say, yeah, you know, I was, you know, if you're Larry Kudlow, I was chief economist at Bear Stearns. I was a TV personality. If you're Gary Cohn, you were, you know, an inch away from being the CEO of Goldman Sachs um, and, um, and and it probably looked like he wasn't going to get the CEO job, that it was probably going to go to some, like a banker at that. You know, Goldman Sachs goes back and forth. Right. Gary and Lloyd Blankfein are part of the traders. Now it's moving towards a banker 
uh, uh, Happens role. every 10, 12 right. years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They switch back and forth. So he looked like he wasn't getting that, the one job he really tried for. He's wealthy, obviously. And, you know, here he is. You know, he's going to be at the pinnacle of power and at a, at, at a top policymaking job. Um, th- that's not a bad trade. My view is it's a better trade if it wasn't for the guy who's in the office because Donald Trump is such a a um, how can I put it? He's so unique and so bizarre and and and, and he's so volatile that you know you're gonna your reputation is on the line when you know he gives a speech that compares neo Nazis to to you know to peaceful protesters or whatever he did. I understand what the, what Trump was trying to do, but it was so you know weirdly handled. I mean, he was trying to say, listen, there was anti-fascist people there starting trouble. There were neo-Nazis starting trouble. Uh, and, you know, that they cancel each other out. Charlie, really, it should have been a slam dunk for anybody to I know, say but, it. Like, but, I don't, but, these guys way, don't have you know, anything to do with me. I mean, it's... Uh, right. And if, you know, and if you know how it really went down, that was a, 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 a riot started by the neo-Nazis. They descended upon to right around those uh, those Confederate monuments. Yes, there was some anti-fascist there. By the way, one of the uh, one of the uh, one of the neo-Nazis, someone who was at least tangentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, related to them, killed somebody in a, with this car. I mean, this is bad stuff. So, you know, you, you run the other way on stuff like that, you know. Um, but basic rhetorical but, stuff, basic rhetorical stuff. And this yeah. guy, if nothing else, he's seasoned. He's done the well, you're Apprentice. Making my point. He's been on. Making... He's been on the Cosby Show. Can't you just come out and say this does not represent America? I mean, basic marketing. Even if yeah. let's let's be cynical, you and I for two seconds. You 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 might blink at David Duke and the people in the background. I love your votes, but I gotta slam you. I mean, just for the yeah. sake of, of, of I think I think he was I think like someone went to him. I, I'm not sure who. Maybe it was Steve Bannon, who was still in the White House. I, I know Steve very well. Who said, "Listen, you know, go. You don't attack your base. These these people are part of your base." And uh, and he did. And now listen, it takes a, a degree of courage to tell your base they're wrong. I mean, John McCain did that during the 2008. I remember campaign. when someone out called uh, Obama Muslim, and he, he and corrected he said, no, that not. woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's John McCain. Uh, the gulf of difference between John McCain and, and uh, Donald Trump. Well, that uh, illustrates your point to how much the Republican right. Party. I mean, this is for better or for worse Trump's Republican Party now. I mean, you see how, how highly uh, he, he polls know, in the party right I, now. I, 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 yeah, I, I think Republicans just just so you know, the Republicans have always hated the media. As as someone who's been in the main, listen, I've not, I'm not, I wasn't on the Wall Street Journal editorial page, right? I was, a, I was a you know, bread and butter reporter there. Uh, the same with CNBC and Newsweek and wherever I went. Uh, I, there is a, a huge belief within the Republican Party uh, that the, that the deck is the deck is stacked up against them. The mainstream media hates them, and so they do they do rally behind their leader who who feeds them that red meat. Now you should know it's hard to win general elections just through straight party votes. Most people are, even if they consider themselves conservative or right of center, there a lot of people are, you know, lay, lay themselves independent, you know, apart from the party. So I, I'm just saying that, you know, this is a numbers game in many respects. And, uh, you know, he may be playing to his base, but I don't think it always, I don't know if that's, if, if that's a great long-term strategy. Getting back to Gary Cohn, and this is where I think, you know, he drafted his resignation letter. I mean, why do you have to draft a resignation letter after something like that? You either feel strongly or you don't. And I, I, I thought that was somewhat, that was sort of, sort of a, uh, a, a cop-out, you know? Okay, 
he leaked to Kate Kelly or whoever he leaked to, um, New York Times, hey, you know, I drafted my resignation letter, just so you know. Well, why didn't you resign if you really think this what this guy did was wrong? I almost thought Mnuchin had it right. A bunch of his Yale colleagues, I'm not saying I, I, would, I would resign immediately. Well, first off, I would never take a job with, <laughs> in the administration for a lot of reasons. Well, but, it could happen, uh, Charlie. He could. You know this. It's happened with Kudlow and other people. It happened with Mooch, apparently, right? He sees you on Fox Biz enough. He sees you on Fox News. He's like, Charlie, why don't you come up here and do something? Yeah. You have to talk to your yeah. wife about it, wouldn't you? Well, here's the thing. He wouldn't, watching me on Fox Business, he would never do that. He could neutralize you. I could hire maybe. you, kid. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know if I'm that important to neutralize. But uh, and Scaramucci was a whole another bizarre, unique, to, you know, thing where you know this guy was you know trying to get in there, get in there, get in, get into the administration. He was blocked by Priebus and Bannon for a while. They just didn't trust his judgment. And, his nickname uh, he, for Priebus just I, I can't I cannot now think of Anthony Scaramucci and not think about his nickname. I mean the rogue gallery of people that they brought. Initially, he did they, not. By the way, he did not make up that name. Oh, that geez. name was out there well before. I, you know, I, I work for Bloomberg, and they used to say that Mike Bloomberg's management style was to throw a bunch of of, of angry, hungry cats into a bag and, and and make them like fight with each other and see who emerges victorious. And I'm convinced Maybe, that but, Trump thrived on that chaos too, with Bannon and Priebus and and these characters and and, and the well, poor Bannon first and press got secretary. Along. Bannon and Priebus got along. Yeah, but Mooch and Priebus. Yeah, I mean, but that Mooch, was the whole Mooch other and thing. Bannon. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. Listen, uh, I, you know, General Kelly, Mooch, Bannon, Priebus. You know, <laughs> could you imagine that? I mean, it was, these are all these are all sort of people that are just sort of like. Well, I shouldn't say Pre- Priebus is a pretty rational guy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he I think was establishment with, to my mind. I yes, see Priebus. I see. I see the outgoing, just, you know, Speaker of the House. Yeah, he just had no um, he had no stroke in there, and I think one of the things, smart things that Kelly did was he got at least a modicum of stroke within the White House, right? He, like, Priebus didn't have that stroke. Remember, they uh, they initially divided the chief of staff job was kind of divided between Bannon and Priebus in many ways. Now they forged an alliance, and one of the and in their alliance, they they both came to the conclusion that Anthony Scaramucci wasn't good for the, for that for any job close to the president. Now that doesn't mean he wasn't going to get something. But uh, they, I don't think they wanted him speaking publicly. You remember before Anthony? Uh, <laughs> I was thinking the, Wall, the Wall Street Week reboot and everything. I mean, Scaramucci was always a great person you could call, a great source on Wall Street. He knew Goldman. He knew the hedge fund schmoozing world. It seemed like a strange fit. He got too volatile as, you know, towards the end, I think. I mean, I've known the guy for a long time. I'm, I'm not friends with him now. Uh, I was friends with him at one time. Uh, listen, he's a talented salesman himself. Um, I think, you know, he, he was put in the absolute wrong job for the type of personality he is. Um, and uh, he imploded because of that. And, you know, you know, Priebus or Sean Spicer or Bannon would tell you that that job wasn't good for him. And by the way, they were right. <laughs> or else he'd still be there. Do, right? you think, do you think that job is right for Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Yes, I do. I think she actually does a good job. Really? You know, I watch her. Yeah, I watch her and I watch you know, like a stonewall, you know, someone who has who could stonewall with a straight face every day. It's that's not easy. And uh, listen, reporters will always hate the flack who says no comment or, you know, tries to dissemble and all that. And by the way, sometimes flacks are given, PR people are given the information, like, right, it's just so much they can do. This is what they're told they have to say. Uh, I think she actually does a fairly effective job at that. I, I, I don't think anybody could do it better, to be honest with you. I, I you know, Sean Spicer, who is 
you know, had lots of experience dealing with the media. I dealt with Sean for years, and I actually liked him. You know, she does a better job than him, and she does it every day. She takes the slings and arrows. Uh, Full disclosure, her her old man is a a friend of mine, uh, so I, you know, always have a soft spot for someone named Huckabee. But I I actually... uh, I actually think she does a pretty good job. I, it's not you tell me that's an easy job. I mean that job. But you're saying she does a good job in the interest of stonewalling the enemy, which is the press for the base. Yes, right. Yes. As a mock, and, for a Machiavellian for, perspective. For for yeah, but that's like, but they all do it to a certain extent. I mean, you tell but me, but not uh, for a kind of a you know democratic uh, transparency, the fourth rail press perspective. Well, Josh Ernest did it, and you know, uh, Jay Carney did it, and. You know, who was the guy that did it? Mike McCurry and others. Mike McCurry was amazing when he did it. And, you know, this is not a, these, you know, that's not, their job is not to give us stuff. Okay. Their job is not to, I mean, listen, you hope they don't lie to you. And I hope she didn't lie about this whole um, brouhaha involving Don Jr. and who drafted that letter that, who drafted the statement to the New York Times about his meeting with uh, the Russian uh, lawyer that's kind of, at, kind of is at, is one of the focuses of the Mueller investigation. Uh, you hope they don't lie, but you know, there, there is a certain amount, I've been doing this long enough, you know, you know, PR people do, you know, answer others who tell them what's, what's, what's going on inside the room. And they, at some point, they have to, uh, f- you know, they have to follow orders. So I, I, f- I don't blame the messenger that much on this. Um, and she's got a tough job given the principal. Now, you could say, why is she doing this job given the, who the principal is? And that's, that's a whole other story. But if you're asking me, you know, technically, does she do a decent job? I mean, I watch her a lot. Um, because, you know, networks take But it might be, you know, life. Charlie, it might be the boxer in you to see the way she deflects things and protects Maybe. her midsection or her face. <laughs> Maybe. Or how she protects her boss. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like impressed by the straight face. I mean, she's, I mean, she, she basically, she just, she disarms some of the, the best people in journalism every day. I mean, you know, Jim Acosta is no dummy. Yeah. You know, I don't think you could say he gets the best of her. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Charlie Gasparino. He joined Fox Business Network in 2010, early 2010, as senior correspondent. You and I did many hits together on CNBC back in the day. In the 10 minutes or so we have left, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, this uh, tragic comedy over at EPA with Scott Pruitt. It seems like a crazy ass headline comes out every day. I mean, it's Chick-fil-A this week. He tried to get his wife a Chick-fil-A franchise. He was trying to get yeah. used mattresses from a Trump hotel beforehand. I under, I can almost understand if you have disdain for the EPA enough to kind of put a guy like this in there. But how is this at all consistent with Drain the Swamp? And where do you see this headed? Well, that's the problem. Uh, in full disclosure, since that's the name of the show, I have done almost no reporting on Scott Pruitt. Uh, I read what you read. Um, but I've done a reporting on Michael Cohen, you know, the Trump personal lawyer who's now enmeshed in the Mueller investigation and other investigations. I, I think if there's, if there's one thing you could say is like Trump, again, great marketer, right? Train the Swamp is a really nice, you know, tight, concise, you know, uh, advertising slogan, right? Now, is it is there any does it comport with any bit of reality? Of course not. There's tons of lobbyists running around. There's you know people are always looking to get money out of the administration. Michael Cohen himself was using his connections with Trump to gin up business. You know whether he actually 
apparently he didn't call Trump, but he was using those connections. Uh, I could tell you that there are plenty of PR people, media advisors, you know, pseudo lobbyists that are doing the same thing, and they make a, they make a good living doing it. So the swamp is far from being drained. I mean, if you the the one way you drain the swamp, and this is where Trump's uh, blind spot is. You know, if you're a true conservative, you want to drain the swamp, get rid of the Commerce Department. You know, you literally shut it down. You don't. Why, I mean, why do we need a Commerce Department? To be honest with you, right? How would that sell with the Chamber of Commerce? I mean, you know those guys. I don't think they'd care if you lower corporate taxes and get rid of the Commerce Department. But that's how you, I mean, just so you know, that's how you drain the swamp. You start reducing the size and scope of government and bureaucracies. Uh, you go and you take a, a, you know, a machete to the Department of Education. That doesn't mean you cut education funding, but the mandate, the federal mandates and the size of what the federal government says a local school district must do gets pulled back. And you do that throughout every agency. Listen, I'm not saying cut Veterans Affairs, but it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big department, and it's dysfunctional. Uh, you know, there's a way to deal with that, and I think conservatives would say that's what we would do. Um, but if you look at it, that's not what Donald Trump is doing. He's in many ways keeping the size of government the same. So the swamp hasn't been drained at all. So if you're telling me that Scott Pruitt, you know, controls this massive agency with all this power, uh, and he uses that power to enhance, you know. And enhance the business interests of his wife or his kids or whoever, uh, I would say, well, that's because the swamp is far from drained. The EPA has way too much power to control stuff. And Scott Pruitt can can utilize that power to to pay off his cronies and his family. And that's the that's the, the, the sort of contradiction of Trumpism. There is no draining of the swamp. It's literally this this government is the same size it was when Barack Obama ran it, the exact same size and maybe bigger in some respects. Charlie, I got to ask you, when you get a couple of drinks or a couple of beers into some of your your best sources, I mean, down in the financial district and the right. tri-state, you know, hedge fund corridor, um, it's probably very stylish to to express a public disdain for Trump or in cocktail party circles. But as you saw with the cover of The Economist, businesses in bed. I mean, the Dow broke 25,000 again today. You know, when we're doing yep. this interview, it's been just a gangbuster time for market returns, for real estate. You're getting a big tax refund this year. You could be very liquid. You, you know, um, it, it is, you have to admit that he's been good for business. So what do they say oh, yeah. in public and in private to you? Well, it's the same thing that I say. Listen, first off, Robin, any generic Republican would have – I mean, Donald Trump didn't invent the tax cut, right? <laughs> he didn't invent deregulation. I mean, this is stuff that a Republican Congress and, you know, every one of those guys and gals – I guess there was at least one woman, Carly Fiorina, on, you know, that was running for president. Any one of them would have done. Uh, they would have cut the side. They would have scaled back deregulation. They would have tried to repeal Dodd Frank, mm -hmm. which is not quite repealed, but they they lessened some of the more onerous uh, rules involving community banks. Uh, they would have done some really heavy stuff with taxes. Any one of them, particularly if you have a Republican Congress. So, you know, I think um, I, I think most people sort of recognize that. Um, you know, they also recognize that Trump has his downside with trade. They, you know, everybody and their uncle worries about a trade war. I mean, listen, it's, what, what, what's fascinating is that he has China in a really good 
position ready to choke out ZTE, you know, mm-hmm. that telecom company, which, by the way, was a, a like a semi-criminal operation, right? Everybody knows they did bad stuff, right? That's my opinion. I mean, I'm not saying they were charged criminally, but they, they were sanctioned a lot by the Commerce Department for the alleged theft of intellectual property. If there was any company that was that should go out of business, it's probably them. And, you know, he Trump lets them go. And uh, so people shake their heads at that. And they're all they're also worried that, you know, here's a guy that's so volatile, he'll uh, he'll he'll ruin it. You know, he'll ruin what's what's essentially, a, you know, a good thing based on some some what they believe is some sound policy decisions. Uh, so, you know, listen, there's it. They understand it. He's a double edged sword. I mean. Uh, I understand it. I've written as much, you know. I mean, listen, I have no problem with taking down the corporate tax rate to a level where it's um, where it's compatible with, with Ireland. So we're not losing – I mean, it used to be – I grew up with a lot of Irish guys whose family was – you know, parents were immigrants. And, you know, they came here for a reason because, you know, Ireland was such a poor country. Uh even in the 70s and the 60s. Uh, same thing with Italian, Italian Americans that I grew up with. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know we, we were losing actually jobs to, to, to Ireland because of the corporate tax rate. Um, I think what's going to be interesting, though, with these Wall Street executives, and the reason why they're, they're still, he still hasn't sold, sold them, is that the tax cuts, as they were announced on the personal side, you know, might may turn out for a lot of these Wall Street guys to be a huge tax increase. When I, I said this to Joe Piscopo the other day, I was on his radio show, and Joe's a huge fan of Donald Trump. Joe's an old friend of mine. I said, Joe, you know, you do realize that your viewers and your listeners, who are largely from New York and New Jersey, you know, they're going to get screwed next year. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, he goes, come on, you know, he lowered our taxes. And I said, no, he didn't. He lowered it by a couple percentage points. Then he then he plugged that state and local tax deduction. I mean, there's, you can't do that. So you guys are going to get a tax increase. And that's and that's what has a lot of Wall Street um, got people worried. Now, okay, don't cry for Wall Street. I get it. But I'm telling you what what worries them a lot about Trump is there there are inconsistencies in policy as a as a as it relates to trade and um, and taxes and his own volatile nature. So it's, you know, you know, listen, if you ask anybody on Wall Street, you know, who would you rather have? Hillary Clinton, who's acting like Bernie, who during the campaign campaigned a lot like Bernie Sanders rather than Bill Clinton or or um, or Donald Trump. I, they still would say Donald Trump. Charlie, in the few minutes we have left, I want to hold your hand to the fire and get some predictions for this year. The midterm okay. elections. I'm um, always wrong. I want to know. No, really. I mean, kind of I, I don't even know if there's any such a thing as a kind of a northeastern Republican anymore. It's been a it, it, this this party has been so kind of, you know, deep south and, and rust belted that yep. uh, does it leave anything up north? And, and what do you think's going to happen? Well, you know, it's funny you asked that. I once I can't remember the numbers, but I tallied up all the uh, Republicans in New Jersey New York and California, and it was like I, I, I seem to remember something like 18. The number 18 pops in my head. So, so suppose you lost all those 18. Well, then you really start chipping away at the Republican hold in, this, in, this, in the House. And um, I think that it'll be put to the test. Um, you know, do, you know, if you notice, none of those Republicans that, uh, you know, like Peter King, who represents a district in Long Island, uh, were, were crazy about the tax deal because they got rid of state and local tax deduction. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people think that's a big, you know, it's only Wall Street guys that live, that, that make money out, out here. Well, you know, if, you're, if you make a $150,000 and you live in Long Island 
and you have a mortgage, you know, that may sound like you're rich in Iowa, but you're not rich in Long Island. Take it from me. You got a couple kids. You pay high. You pay property taxes. And uh, so I think, you know, that the tax bill in many ways screwed, you know, Republicans in those those types of states. And that could swing the House. And I'm telling you, if the Republicans lose the House, Donald Trump is going to Donald Trump's rear end is going to be roasted every day <laughs> for two years. But I got to tell you, I'm not so sure impeachment is a bad or this this constant, um, you know, uh, uh, battery of hearings is so bad for him. I mean, he, he well, it doesn't have the, to be impeachment. It well, has he, to is, be, he seems to be one of the guys, as he said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Ave. He might he, his his status well, would seem to gain from something like that. Maybe with his his core, but you can't win just on the base. You know, the problem is that. You know, the Republicans controlled all these committees that were sort of mirroring uh, what uh, Mueller was doing. Now, if the Democrats controlled those hearing those committees, say Adam Schiff was <laughs> head of that of the committee that Nunes is head of. Right. Isn't that the same committee that uh, they're, they're both part of? Could you imagine the leaks coming out of there about what type of what they found on Russia would be? And, you know, this is this. Is, these are elections, particularly presidential elections that are won at the margins. I mean, for what for, for I mean, Trump won based on a 70,000 vote swing in three or four states. Uh, I mean, that's like that's unheard of. And it was done largely because he he had so much stamina at the end and he listened to Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon on, on where to focus his energies and they brilliantly, you know, thread that needle. Also, maybe um, we did the Facebook correct for him. Yeah, maybe. Maybe there's some of that. And, you know, but I'm just saying that there, you know, will lightning strike twice? <laughs> I don't know. It usually doesn't. But, you know, it's. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I think that when, when you control... That when you control the House of Representatives, you'd be surprised on how much political power you have because of the investigative tools to those House members. It's listen, they they screwed with Bill Clinton. Now he got reelected twice, right? Got got reelected once, but he was reelected and then reelected amid all that stuff. But you know, he never won more than fifty percent of the vote. The Republicans controlled Congress, he pushed them way to the right on on all these economic issues. Um, I mean there was welfare reform. That's right, by ninety six. I do remember that. Right. And so I, I mean that you know, controlling the levers of Congress and, and the public debate from those levers when you control the House is a big thing. And I and I don't know. I mean you know, Donald Trump, you know, beats up on all these Republicans all the time. Just think if he had to look at Every day, Adam Schiff's face as the chairman. This is of that this is where if you're on Twitter, which you're like a ninja of Twitter, you would insert that uh, animated GIF of, of the late Michael Jackson eating popcorn in, in uh, yes, in it'd, be, it'd be hysterical, right? It'd be Charlie hysterical. Gasparino, I believe you have somewhere to be. You have somebody to kneecap in Midtown or the financial district. No, no. <laughs> you are a you good know, you are a good man. I've always admired your byline. Going back to the Wall you. Street Journal days, I mean, it seems like ancient history, but the you know I the know. Elliot Spitzer research reforms and everything. I've admired you from afar because you are a hungry, hungry journalist and you're kind of, you. Uh, you know, you don't get lazy, you don't get tired and you call us all out for getting lazy and tired. So stay well, thirsty, my friend. I will try. I, I appreciate it. Right now. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us and love us on NPR One. It's a great app and on iTunes at Full D Radio. And you know what? Message me for sponsorship opportunities. We are buying the dips in the trickle-down swamp making radio great again. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.